the importance of identity in your life. Identity and our identity in Christ is one of the main themes of Scripture. It's one of the main areas in our life that God wants to transform. It's one of the main areas of emphasis in our schools of transformation at all peoples. And it's also a key to growth as believers. This podcast is a message from the vault on the topic of identity in Christ. I know it will impact you. For more on this, you can check out the book, The Identity Journey, or anything else by all people. Enjoy the message. I want to start with a story. You may be familiar with the legendary Stradivarius violin. If you're not, I'm going to tell you about it. A Stradivarius violin is a very expensive musical instrument. It's a, it's a European instrument made hundreds of years ago by a man named Stradivari. There's about 600 of them ever made, and they go for tens of millions of dollars. They actually found one in an attic. Every time they find a random one, it's always in the news because someone literally just, you know, hit, struck gold when they found this violin. For many musicians playing uh, one of these instruments, there's a couple guitars, mostly violins, a cello. It, it would be the highlight of their musical career. Uh, they're famous for their tone. They're famous for the, the musical quality of the notes, for the craftsmanship. And so it piqued my interest a couple years ago when I heard this story on the radio. A bunch of economists came together, and they decided they were going to assess the value of a Stradivarius violin. And so this was their big idea. They got a bunch of classical musicians, and they went into a hotel room, and they, they blindfolded them. They plugged their noses. They had to wear special gloves. And the whole idea was to keep them from knowing if they were playing a Stradivarius. And the question was, what, what gives a Stradivarius this amazing value? What makes it worth tens of millions of dollars? Is it any different than a Yamaha violin I bought from Guitar Center? That was the question. And I'm going to play you a little clip of the radio uh, sample here so you can get an idea for what they did. In the world of violins, the names Stradivari and Guarneri are sacred. For three centuries, violin makers and scientists have studied the instruments made by these Italian craftsmen. So far, no one has figured out what makes their sound different. But a new study suggests maybe they aren't so different after all. NPR's Christopher Joyce explains. Okay, here's a test. We're going to hear a musical phrase from Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto in D major, played twice by the same musician. One's played on a Stradivarius, the other on an instrument made in 1980. See if you can tell the difference. Ready? Pretty sweet. Now try this one. Tough choice, but a pro could pick the Stradivarius, right? Well, a research team recently tried to find out. We could pause right there. professional violinists in a hotel room. Thank you so much. So they got all these violinists. They went in a hotel room. They played the, the two instruments. One of them was a Strad. And would you know that three out of the 17 classically trained, symphony-employed violinists could tell the difference? Only three out of 17. By the way, who thought it was the first one? Who thought the Stradivarius was the first one? Who thought it was the second one? Okay, we have some classically trained violinists in here. It was the, it was the second one. Way to go. <laughs> these, these violinists could not tell, so I don't know how you could tell, but they could not tell. I promise. I verified this story several times. Don't lie in church. Um, so the big question was, what is the value of this violin? If you really can't tell a big difference, why is it worth so much? And the only thing these economists could come to was, it's the story of who made it. 
the story of, of who made this instrument, not the, the quality of its music, not the, whoever was playing it, not the music that was coming out. It, it went back to its maker. And to us, that speaks to us of the power of our identity in Christ. Because as the people of God, our value doesn't come from what we do. It doesn't come from the music we play. It doesn't come from whether we're having a good day or a bad day or we're warmed up and had the greatest quiet time on, in the world or we happened to turn to K- on Caleb on the way to work and that was it. Our value, our value comes from God because he made us. David Brooks, the author of the Second Mountain New York Times bestselling author, talks about life as two halves. He says the first half is one mountain, it's an identity journey, and the second half is a wisdom mountain, it's a wisdom journey. I wanna speak to you today about this idea of of our identity because I've been on an identity journey. On my 31st birthday, I, I woke up to spend time with God and got my Bible out and my cup of coffee, as I often do, and uh It was just an important day for me to be with God. It's always an important day to be with God because you don't know what he's going to speak to you. Amen? So God spoke to me that morning, and he said, Kendall, it's your birthday. I want to give you a present for your birthday. I thought, awesome. Then I prayed about it a little bit, and I thought, you know, it's probably not going to be a Ferrari. (laughs) Probably not going to be that Tesla I've been praying for, right? No, of course, God wants to meet our needs, but I, I could tell it was something spiritual, something God wanted to do in my heart. So God spoke to me and said, I have 31 promises for your life. I have 31 promises for your life. They're all in the book of Ephesians. So I open up my Bible, open up Ephesians 1.1. I'm like, hey, what are these promises? There's something I'm going to do or accomplish or something for my ministry. And, and I look down Ephesians 1.1, Paul to the saints in Ephesus. And I just wrote down, I am a saint. Grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wrote down, I have grace and peace. And and what I found was was the secrets of my identity, these promises that God had for me, were hidden right in the scriptures. And they're hidden right for you as well. The gift of our identity is all over the New Testament. And today I'm gonna build on that as we look at Colossians together, as this church is in a series on Colossians. Today I wanna speak to you from the subject, identity, a key to growth as a Christian. Identity, a key to growth as a Christian. Are you ready to grow today? That's good because I have some news for you. You'll never outgrow your identity. You'll never outgrow your identity. See, our identity in our lives is, is like a container and it's so, it's so of the moment, right? Every time we turn on the news or, or read the news, we see conversations about identity. There's gender identity, there's very important conversations in our culture about identity, and then there's people that are dealing with questions of sexual identity, there's generational identity, there's all kinds of different identities that we look for and we try to see in the world, but God has a more ancient identity for us. He has, he has a deeper identity for us. He has something more foundational that every other other identity in our lives is rooted from. And if that's not the case, we won't grow the way God wants us because we won't have the right identity. I like to think of an idea of a plant. The problem in the church today is very similar to the problem we face when we buy a plant from Home Depot. See, I go to, I go to Home Depot and I buy a plant and um, then a few days around, a few days later, I get around to planting it. What I do is I take off the, the little container and I pull it out. And this is typically the kind of plant that I see from Home Depot. Does this look like something that you'd find when you go shopping? And what you're going to see is this is a root-bound plant. So this container controls the growth of the plant. And 
When a plant needs to grow beyond its container, I oftentimes see this when I go to the San Diego Zoo. I go to the zoo and I see plants that are the same plants I have in my yard, but they're like 20 times bigger because they had room to grow. And so, you know, when, when we look at this plant, we see the roots, they, they, they start to turn inward if they don't have room to grow. And then the plant eventually stops, if it's a fruit-bearing plant, bearing fruit. And then it eventually withers up, becomes useless. We throw it away next summer, forget to water it. This container speaks of our identity. Our identity is important. It's meant to protect us. It's meant to add borders uh, around our life. But we have a problem in the church today, which is we have too many root-bound Christians. We have Christians that don't understand the fullness of their identity in Christ. So what happens to us? God wants to grow us. But we can't grow the way God wants because we're stuck in an old container. The, word put, the world puts labels on us. We, we put labels on ourselves and we're unable to grow. And so what God does in his mercy is he digs us out. He gets his shovel, he digs us out of our little container, and then he takes his holy screwdriver. I left my screwdriver backstage, but this is what I do at my house. I start picking out the roots. Kind of a painful process, right? What happens when God starts working on our identity? A little bit of a painful, ouch, you hit my identity button, God. God starts tearing up the roots. Then what does he do? He replants us in a bigger area. What does that require? That requires faith because God's given us room to grow. So this is the process of how God transforms our identity, and this is how you help a root-bound plant. This is exactly what uh, Abraham went through. God, he was in a certain situation at a certain point in his life, and God spoke to him and said, Abraham, go to the place I'm going to show you. God rooted him out. He did some work in his life, and he moved it on. We see this happen time and time again with leaders in the Scriptures. God took him on a journey to transform his identity before he could walk into his destiny because identity is the key to growth. So today I'm going to review three truths with you about your identity in Christ. The first truth is I am accepted. Say I'm accepted. The second truth is I have authority. Say I have authority. The third truth is I am anointed. Say I am anointed. Important truths about our identity in Christ. I am accepted. The Cleveland Clinic, they study mental health in America, and they did a study on self-talk. And this is what they, they, they learned. 95% of the thoughts that any of us have daily are repetitive. Out of that 95%, 80% of the average person are negative. So we wake up. Oh, should have taken that Advil last night. Shouldn't have played basketball so long. Yeah, the old back's not what it used to be, right? Then we go look in the mirror, and that can be a neg very negative experience in the morning. <laughs> oh, I forgot to let the dog out last night. That dog. Okay, now we're dealing with that, right? Now the kids are up before 6 a.m., miraculously, right? And so there, there's a whole thing going on with that. We're getting in the car. We're driving to work. We've never seen traffic before, and we've never cut anyone off. But we have a lot of thoughts and a lot of ideas about everyone else and their driving. And the negativity just continues all the way to the office inbox, 80% of what we think through every day is negative. And, and you know, what I, what I see in my life is, is a container. 
that puts me in a container. I call it the condemnation container. You know, we let our circumstances, we let our challenges, we let um, our misgivings and our, and, our, and our failings define us, and it limits our identity. But God says we are accepted. Amen? The book of Colossians starts off, Colossians 1, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia. I think that's amazing that God would start a letter and say, to the saints. I think that's amazing. I, because that term saints isn't really a term we use very often today. Something happened in church history because there were amazing people. There were people that did great things for God. People like St. Patrick and St. Francis and these amazing leaders, Mother Teresa. And because of what they did, that we wanted to honor them in the, in the life of the church. And so what happened is we, that title, saint, was given to them. But I think there's been an unintended consequence of that belief system, which has been that we, we believe actually that people are holy and holier than us because of what they've done. You see, we're accepted by God. And so we're made holy, we're made right with God, not because of anything we do. It's because of something Jesus did a long time ago on the cross, right? And, and we can't associate our sainthood, our acceptance, our identity, our holiness with our performance. We'll never live up. That's why Jesus performed on our behalf. That's what grace is. Jesus said it was finished. And so I want to speak an important truth to you this morning that all believers are saints in Jesus Christ. The Bible actually refers to Christians as saints 61 times in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Romans 1.7, Jude 1.3, Ephesians 1.15, Philemon 1.5. Uh, uh, in the book of Corinthians is a very interesting example because in Corinthians, it starts out and Paul says, hey, I'm writing this letter to the saints in Corinth. That's very, very important because Corinthians is written to address a church in sin. People are, are in all kinds of immorality. The church doesn't know how to organize itself. And yet Paul starts this letter speaking of identity and says to the saints in Corinth. Say, I am a saint. You know, going to church doesn't make you holy. Reading a Bible doesn't make you holy. Oh, please read your Bible. But it's not gonna make you holy, <laughs> right? Going to a special conference or a special school does it change your standing with God? Oh, you can experience freedom and more of what God has for you, but that doesn't change your standing with God. There's plenty of people that did all those things, by the way, and lived like hell, right? Our holiness is determined by the sacrifice that was made for us. We are accepted. That's what breaks the container of condemnation in our lives. I mean, Colossians depicts this so well in chapter 2, 8 through 15. I'll just breeze through this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You see, we, we get distracted by all the things that are out in the world and we wanna define ourselves that way. That happened in Colossians as well. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried 
with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. I know I'm reading a long passage, but hang with me. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's the main idea of that passage? The main idea is the past tense is used 10 times. We have been buried. We have been made alive. The record of debt against us has been canceled. He has set it aside. He has already disarmed the rulers and powers and authorities. We have been filled in him. Oh, but brother, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That was true one time in your life before you knew Jesus. Now you're made alive with Christ. Oh, but brother, I'm just fighting the flesh. Well, praise God. It says right here that God has already circumcised your flesh and set it aside. That old man died. Well, brother, it's a heavy spiritual atmosphere out there. Better be careful. It's a dark time. Oh, sure. <laughs> I know it's a dark time. Trust me. That's why I'm so thankful that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him. Do you know... Do you know what that picture is of? It's of a king returning from battle, kicking his enemies at the beginning of a parade. We have been accepted. Does it matter if we sin? Of course it matters. But we don't want to reduce our identity to something less than what Jesus died for. Otherwise, we'll never overcome the condemnation we deal with. We have been accepted in Christ. We are more than a divorced person. We are more than a depressed person. We are more than an alcoholic person, right? We, we are more than the frustration, the depression, the deceptions that we deal with. We are in Christ and we are accepted. And you are accepted. Say, I am accepted. This is one of the truths that I meditated on during that season of declaring these 31 promises over my life. We have authority in Christ. Just want to highlight a couple verses here. We already read them. Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Maybe I'll put it this way. God shares his badge with you. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what's this all about? So just to review, and if you're new to church, this is really important for you to know. Jesus died. He died. He fulfilled many prophecies about his life, performed many miracles, including the way that he would be born and die. That's pretty hard to do. And he died as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And when we meet Jesus, Galatians 2.20 says we have been crucified with Christ. And so Jesus died on our behalf. He died for us, and therefore our old life dies with him when we meet Jesus. On the third day, Jesus rose again. 
and resurrection power. He raised himself from the dead to show that he was the way to eternal life. And we just celebrated some baptisms at the beginning of this service. And that's what baptism represents. Not only have we died with Christ, but we have been raised with Christ. We experience new life now, yes, in the age to come, but also now because of Jesus. But here's the third truth that I think we often forget. Because after Jesus raised from the dead, he appeared to many people and taught his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven. You know, Ephesians chapter two says, you have been seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You see how we, we died with Christ. We, we have been raised with Christ, and we have ascended with Christ to walk in his authority. That's why Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now you go and make disciples. I'm sharing my authority with you. We have authority as believers. So I got to experience this in a very unique way. During the last year, I had some, some health issues. And one of those times in the doctor, they drew some blood. Now this hasn't happened to me since I was a freshman at Baylor at the Red Cross Drive at the Slick, okay? So I kind of thought I was over it. But in the middle of them drawing blood, I passed out. And all the medical professionals in the room were like, oh man, what a wimp. Okay, so I do my best, okay? And so I pass out and I wake up and now I know what the guy felt like in the born identity. I didn't know who I was. In my view, I was probably, you know, fighting around the room and looking really cool. I don't think that's exactly what I was doing. But uh, the doctor was freaked and he's looking at me, he's, he's holding me and I, I'm not even understanding English. Like I'm coming into consciousness. And finally I hear these words, we're taking you to the ER, we're taking the ER. I'm like, who am I, where am I? We're taking you to the ER, we're taking you to the ER. And something about we're taking you to the ER Somewhere deep in my subconscious, I heard medical bill. <laughs> and so, so I said, I'm not going to the ER. And so I stood up in the hospital room and said, my name is Kendall Laughlin. I'm at 5525 Grossmont Center in La Mesa Boulevard, La Mesa, La Mesa, California, 91942. My birthday is April 9th. I mean, I just went on to my identity. And they were unable to take me to the ER. Listen, we can't control often what happens to us in life. We can control where it takes us when we know our identity. Are you following me? <laughs> All right. We, we, we can control whether it defines us, right? The, this is the container of victimhood. You see, yeah, hard things happen. I mean, as a pastor, I see hard things every day. We've had several funerals in our church this week. They're praying for people, dealing with abuse, different things. I mean, that, that is part of this fallen world but our response to those things is what determines our identity. And I'm just concerned with the victimhood that I feel sometimes in the body of Christ because identity is the key to growth. It's the only way out of the pain. They, they, they got a group of people together who are trying to quit smoking. James Clear talks about this in his book, Atomic Habits. And one group of people in this controlled study, they said, this is what, you, what we want you to say every time someone offers you a cigarette. We want you to say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit. The other group, they said, every time someone offers you a cigarette, we want you to say, no thanks, I'm no longer a smoker. All things being equal, who do you think was the group that actually quit smoking? No thanks, I'm no longer a smoker. Identity-based transformation. 
This is the way we grow as people, and it's the way God designed our growth to happen as believers. This is one area where actually the Incredibles got it right. Love the Incredibles, this family on mission, accomplishing great things. And in the beginning, end of the first movie, they're rallying and the kids are putting on their masks and they're getting into the battle. This is very prophetic, by the way, because identity will be the battle for the next generation. Parents, you have no idea the power of you walking up to anyone in this church, much less your own children, putting your hands on them and said, you are a man of God. You are a daughter of God. God has great things for you. God will gift you and you will stand before great people. I mean, just even that alone could change the course of someone's life. And this is why Mrs. Incredible tells her children this, protect your identity. It's your secret weapon. Identity is our secret weapon as believers. We have superior weapons. I have a friend who flies F-18s, and of course, I'm trying to learn about his job, which is always interesting to do as a pastor, right? Ask people about their job. It's like, so do you buzz the tower, you know? Do you make noises at the Russians? What's it like up there, you know? You know what he said? Our weapons are so superior to the weapons of our enemy. I get up there and read a book. It's a $100 million plane, Kendall. It flies itself. I'm like, oh, okay. We have superior weapons in Christ. We can rest because we are seated in heavenly places with Jesus. That doesn't mean that battles don't show up at our door, but when they do, we know where to go, right? We know to declare identity. We know to declare the prophecies that have been spoken about us. My kids led chapel last week at their school. The you know song they sang? When I lift my voice and shout, Every wall comes crashing down. I have the authority Jesus has given me. When I open up my mouth, miracles start breaking out. My kids believe it. Do we? If we did, I think Christians would be much more careful about their speech. But that's a whole other sermon. I am accepted. I have authority. Say, I have authority. Just feels good to say it. You're not bragging. You didn't buy it. Jesus did. I have authority, I am anointed. Colossians helps us out here too. Colossians 1, 27, to them God chose to make known the great amongst the Gentiles, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God chose to be anointed, if you look up the, the Oxford Cambridge definition, it means to be chosen by divine intervention. God chose us, and I love it how it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, Christ is more than Jesus' last name. Christ actually means the anointed one. So God has chosen us, and he has put his power, he has put his anointing inside of us. He has delegated that to us as his people to be the agents of his divine intervention on the earth. There's so many different anointings in the Bible. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, I have given you power to make wealth. The entrepreneurial anointing. There's the anointing that is given to those that are creative and build the temple in the book of Exodus. There's the anointing of government leaders, the anointing of priests. You know, Jesus has said, it's in Acts 10.38, how Jesus of Nazareth basically was anointed to go from town and village and heal all those who are oppressed by the devil. Luke 4.18, 
He was anointed to preach the good news. There's an anointing to preach. There's all kinds of anointings that God gives us as his people. Yours doesn't have to look like someone else's, but we do need to believe that he's put something inside of us, that he's chosen us for divine intervention on this earth. That's why he hasn't beamed us up into heaven yet. If you are part of this church, Antioch, God has a specific anointing on your life. And this church has a specific anointing to preach the gospel to all nations. And so you're coming into that as a member of this church. And God has something powerful for you. 1 Corinthians 1.21, and it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. I like how the New Living Translation switches that around. It uses the word commission for anointing. So powerful. You know, when we recognize that we're anointed by God, it breaks another container in our life. Maybe some other ones here in this room deal with, the container of self-strength. When we define ourselves by what we are able to do or not do, or simply what we are able to afford or not afford, we limit the ability for God to expand our lives. That's why Jabez prayed, God, would you bless me indeed and enlarge my territory? It was a prayer that God would increase his identity through his anointing. We don't simply want what we can do, what can be accomplished by human hands with our little life. We want to leave an inheritance to our children's children. We want to do something great for God. That's why we're part of this church. Say, I am anointed. I'm anointed. We always look at the outside when we think of anointing, right? So did Samuel. He was a prophet. It's easy to do. But God looks at the heart.